Hello again. This is Coach Tim. I'm putting back the whistle onto my neck, and we're going to coach you guys up. I have a, a great guest today. I have, uh, over the past uh, few interviews, have pulled lots of experts in the field of hypnosis and neuro-linguistic programming, or what's called NLP for short. It's a fancy word that can be generalized to mean the study of what works as opposed to what doesn't work. And uh, I met our guest today, his name is Jonathan Alfeld, through his persuasion material back in 2001-2002. But it was in-house training with him in his knowledge engineering course that really made a major shift in my outlook on on life and the way I do things in life. And they really made me a much better football coach, as well as his teaching has generalized into other parts of my life. And what he did was take me through a process that built a mental model of my business. And not from a task standpoint necessarily, but deconstructing my belief structure and putting it onto paper. And this allowed me to see my own faults and positives that I could adjust or build upon. So what this did for me is teach me to see all behaviors attached to a structure and to process. And most importantly, a structure that can be purposefully taught with precision something us coaches would like to have, I think. So here's a bit about his impressive background. Jonathan spent his first career in the 1990s becoming an expert in applied artificial intelligence software, specifically creating AI-based risk assessment software, mostly in the financial arena. And then in 97, he left that field and jumped into NLP training and coaching, which dives into peak performance modeling, personal and professional development, therapeutic change work, and verbal influence, among other things. Since then, he's trained many thousands of people all around the world on how to use NLP in a wide range of contexts. Today, he focuses mostly on business coaching and using NLP in business contexts such as public speaking, management, sales, and more. And with that, welcome to you, Jonathan. Thank you for coming. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you very much for hosting this. I'm glad to join you. It's my pleasure. It's, it's definitely, uh, I've been looking forward to this for many, many months and actually years. We've gone back a long way, and you've counseled me on coaching uh, off and on over the years, and uh, that's been a delight. So I'm going to start off with a uh, sneaky question that I didn't tell you about. I, I, I uh I want to know why do sports matter? Oh, now we're going to go for the big kahuna question. Um, (laughs) uh, Well, actually, I'm glad we started with this rather than jumping into some of the nitty-gritty because it gives us a chance to discuss the philosophy of why this is so important. So a number of things occur to me. I'm sort of thinking through this as as we talk. Um, The first thing that occurs to me is, um, well, two things, really. One is it's a great way to blow off steam. It's a great way to build skill. Uh, I would loop those together. And then the, the second piece of this is that there's this massive area of why sports are important that speaks to mythology. Mm. And so there we're going to get into a little bit of uh, Joseph Campbell material. But the idea is that sports is this opportunity and arena in which, number one, people can reach for what is best inside themselves and create their own hero's journey, which is especially important in people or in, let's say, kids that uh, haven't yet figured out where their hero's journey is going to take them. And, and it's a great starting point. This could be their big hero's journey if it turns into a profession, or it could be 
their first foray into a hero's journey where they reach for excellence inside themselves, they push themselves hard, they achieve a goal, and then they enter the competitive arena. And then for those people who are not involved in sports, there's this desire to see people we know and care about do extraordinarily well and um, and fight in the arena and vanquish their foe. And so uh, sports becomes this wonderful opportunity for people to uh, to reach for what's great inside themselves and to achieve more and to fight their inner demons because sometimes that plays a role. As a coach, I'm sure you've come across that. And yeah. finally, I guess, um, learning how to, uh, how to fight things out elegantly. Um, I think there's, there's a certain um, beauty in competing with respect. And and there's a great deal of divisiveness right now in a, in a timely fashion with what we're seeing in politics, so that sports becomes this wonderful metaphor and opportunity for us to see that we could all do better, even in those arenas. So I don't know. Oh, I wow. think sports sports has uh, a hell of a place in our society and and in anyone's life, uh, whether it's as performer or spectator. That was brilliant. Let's end on that. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was that was in, in short. I just I applaud what you're doing and and how you're helping kids grow. And so I, I think it's it's very meaningful. Well, well, thank you. And and what and how you said your answer is exactly why I think coaches need to do better because we do have an opportunity. Uh, to train kids beyond just a stupid game, because at the end of the day, it's it's all by itself. It's a game, but in the larger context of life and what it could give to a person in figuring out what their hero's journey is, to use your words, is is why coaches matter. I think, and uh, so I really appreciate the way that you you put that answer together. Um, can I add something to that? Just, Please. I mean, because as, as we talk, again, new ideas are coming up. There, there's also this, this recent work in multiple intelligences coming out of Howard Gardner's work uh, at Harvard. Uh, renowned psychologist Howard Gardner uh, wrote this book called The Theory of Multiple Intelligences. This is, I don't know, 25 years ago, way back. And, and he's written books since then. But the idea is that sometimes kids don't know where their best intelligence, if you treat uh, – different skills as intelligences um, because there are people who may not be verbally intelligent but might be physically so intelligent, so brilliant in their capacity for uh, for control and nuance in their movements. So sports gives people an opportunity to find areas of gifts that they might not find in the classroom. So that also has value. Um, oh, and, wow. I, and, I, and I really sort of downplayed the first comment I made about uh, kids getting in shape and and um, and getting rid of excess energy and things like that and so I think those are important too but there's the the, the issue of the hero's journey for me is a much bigger impact. Oh, without a doubt. Can I just jump on what you said with uh, that book and that work on uh, multiple intelligences? You were talking about physicality. Um, does that tie in at all into the the NLP idea of uh, VAC, of the senses, of visual, auditory, and, and kinesthetic, and, and how we learn? Because I, I, I ask that only because I know for myself, uh, I recall we would do film study in, in football. And I'm thinking specifically when I was 
I went to the four-year school, uh, Pacific, <clears throat> and we do film study. We're sitting in the films, and I would and coaches would be talking also about the the new defensive structure or whatever we were going to do, and, and they were installing in, into that practice. And I would be bored stiff because it, it just looking at it on the field on the on the grease board was boring to me and it wasn't real whereas standing on the field and actually learning it through my body it became real and and was instantly learned and i wonder is if that has something to do with with uh what you just said or are they are they not connected well, I don't think anybody has directly connected them much yet, but I think there are people that have certainly spoken to the, the fact that there's definitely overlap here. So we're talking about traditional psychology, um, Howard Gardner's work, and then there's NLP, which is a different model. But there is definitely overlap, and let's talk about a couple of them. And hopefully we're still on topic as we do it. Um, I'm going to give you um, an example of several of the intelligences, the specific intelligences that uh, Howard proposed. And... Uh, and we'll go through how there's overlap with VAK in some cases, in some cases not. So linguistic intelligence is one of them. We might say verbal, we might say you know language, etc. There are people who have a proclivity for language that are just brilliant with words, etc. And uh, and I know that some will point to me as an example of that. I have my models who are far more gifted with language than I'll ever be. So we all have our, let's say, our our reflection of how we perceive our our own intelligence in a given area. So linguistic intelligence would probably mostly involve auditory areas of skill, although some people might represent their thinking processes as kinesthetic or visual, so there's some overlap there. Let's move on to musical intelligence, which is uh, there are some people who have perfect pitch or perfect rhythm and and are born with different levels of that. I've seen I've seen that with my own kids that there are varying levels of of these particular skills. And some might say that's mostly auditory, but a lot of people would think that music is very mathematical, which could be visual, and it can also be very kinesthetic. So there's some overlap there. Here's uh, one more: logical mathematical intelligence. Uh, another is spatial intelligence. Then there's bodily kinesthetic. Um, the personal intelligences, and I think Gardner even came out with one or two more since then. Um, so here's what I'm seeing as overlap. What you described about your own self in terms of how you propelled required you to have multiple sensory systems used as part of your learning process, right? Right. So we would call that um, multisensory learning, and we might also say that that's um, synesthetic or synesthesias are involved, and synesthesias are essentially the blending across the senses. So we know that anyone who is highly synesthetic uh, is closer to genius. When we look at studying all these extraordinary geniuses, many of them were extremely synesthetic. That means they could hear feelings, they could see sensations, they could uh, they could um, they could see what they were about to say playing out in some symbolic fashion. So there's there's a cool. crossover between the senses that occurs in accelerated learning. And that's what you described to me. And so I would say there's natural overlap between the accelerated learning patterns that we might find in NLP and this theory of multiple intelligence that Howard Gardner has proposed. So I think there are different models for explaining some of the same things. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, since I do, I'm one of the few NLP trainers I know, 
that doesn't think that NLP is the end all and be all of everything. <laughs> uh, I think whatever floats your boat, whatever works, whatever gets you the result you're looking for is great. Right, right. Well, let, let me ask you this. Um, we're, we jumped right into NLP kind of and, and didn't really explain it. What What is NLP and uh, for how, how can it help people coaching football? Okay, complicated word for a process. Uh, NLP is neuro-linguistic programming, and that means mind, language, and habits or patterns or programs that we run. And uh, it's been both hailed and criticized by lots of different people. Uh, you get a lot of anecdotal support, even from celebrities and, and famous folks, as well as uh, the traditional field of psychology, ignoring it or, or even criticizing it. Um, there's certainly no shortage of, um, of conflict out there around whether or not NLP is valuable. Um, at its core, and I would also add that the reason that this is the case is largely because the field has mostly completely ignored uh, traditional scientific and educational environments, which is how many fields emerge and how they often are regulated and controlled. So NLP has invited this on itself by being sort of outside of typical circles, for, for better or for worse. That's just the history. Um, NLP began as a process by which they, the people who founded NLP, specifically John Grinder and, uh, uh, and Richard Bandler, and they, they essentially looked at what worked. They found some people who were extraordinary change work artists, great therapists, and they developed a process to unpack how those people were effective at enabling change fast in other people, in patients. So the underpinnings of NLP come from therapy. Well, relatively rapidly, NLP expanded beyond its original charter or intention, and people started noticing that, in fact, they could apply those modeling techniques to just about any other area of human cognition, of performance, of skills. And so a bunch of people who were trained in NLP modeling went out and modeled people in lots of different fields. And these genius techniques, these discoveries of how to be the best at something or how to be better at something – uh, eventually grew and grew and grew, and now we've got this field that is hard to encompass. It's hard to label. It's hard to describe. But essentially, a significant percentage of the self-improvement market out there is based upon the results of NLP. In other words, uh, what, what NLP has done as it's moved forward, uh, if we look at it as a field, is produce vast quantities of modeled success strategies. And Anthony Robbins, whether he admits it or not, <laughs> essentially comes from very strongly so much uh, from an NLP background, among other things. And so uh, NLP has certainly made its way into the hype motivational seminars field, uh, just as it's also been used in sports performance, in influence, in politics, yep, and lots of other areas, including sales and management. Uh, I did some work with it to improve voices. We'll talk about that more if we have a chance later on. And also moving into areas of influence like sales and such. That's a wide open opportunity. So does that help? <laughs> Absolutely. That that's 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 a rich description. So language linguistic language, right, is, is part of that that name. How does that uh how is that a big deal in NLP and how can we use that in coaching 
our kids? It's a great question. And from our perspective at NLP, let's think of it this way. We're not primarily interested in the language. That's actually, um, uh, that's actually kind of a distraction, but it's an essential distraction, and here's why. We're interested in mapping and modeling and potentially changing or improving how people think and how people behave and how people get the results that they want in life. So to do that, we have to imagine that our circuitry inside of our minds is what we would call the deep structure of experience. There's an actual phrase for it, the deep structure of experience. And as NELPers, neurolinguistic programmers, we want to be able to understand someone's deep structure and potentially help them improve it, help them manipulate and, and manage it and rewire it so that it gets them more of what they want in life, right? So hopefully that makes sense, is that we're, we want to improve people's deep structure of experience, what's really going on under the hood, to the degree that we can. Now, here's the problem with that. None of us have this magical ability to go in and reprogram and replace the code of what's in deep structure. So to, to gain clues as to what's in people's deep structure, we have to learn to listen more carefully to clues to that deep structure. And the clues for what's in someone's deep structure are found in their language, what they say. We call that surface structure. So the surface structure of language is what someone says. The deep structure of experience is what that language reflects underneath. So we're trained to listen for how people use language very specifically and learn to understand what's underneath that at a deep structure level. So the language is critical, but that's not the real purpose in our listening for language. We're listening for language and learning to amend and change our language so that we can affect people's deep structure. Okay, so I'm going to hand you my hat and whistle and a team of 23, 8, and 9-year-old boys. And uh, so what are you listening for when one of them is uh, underperforming? Well, I might listen, first of all, for a victim mindset. Uh, that would be one of my first orders of businesses. I'm, I'm listening for limiting beliefs about why they think they can't achieve certain things or why they won't expect the best from themselves or why they think the other teams are better. I'm listening primarily for beliefs initially. That would be my high-level approach. I would listen for what's in the way of them performing well as they currently perceive it because unless I know their own self-perceived limitations, I can't help them break through it effectively consistently. I'll add the word consistently because sometimes through great coaching you can accidentally help people get past their limiting beliefs without knowing how or why you actually did it. Just by keeping them in an environment that's empowering, eventually they break through it on their own. But we can do it faster with NLP in my opinion. Um, and, and actually that's another distinction of NLP is I don't think NLP gives us anything that we can't get through other means. I think it gives us that faster. It's a fast track really. So what would I do? I'd listen for limiting beliefs and listen for clues uh, as to what's in their way and what they accept is in their way, victimization-wise, um, and, and what they think might be hard to do. And then I would set to work at, at changing those limiting beliefs so that they couldn't rely on those limiting beliefs anymore. So that I'd show them, for example, that something they thought would be really hard to do would actually be really easy to do. 
Um, and that would shake up or break their limiting belief. It would make it impossible for them to hold on to that limitation. Uh, and that would change their state as they approach the task. If they discovered, whoa, they can actually push themselves because they, they actually might, in fact, get the result they never thought they could get. So this belief about what's possible or likely um, can often have a significant effect on state and how, and how someone approaches a task. And if they go into that task thinking they're not going to be good enough, then you, they're going to work haphazardly. They're going to put in half the effort that they might otherwise. So, so I'd work on state and beliefs first. Uh, beyond that, I'd listen for accidental language, language that is habitual but sometimes can unintentionally drag a, a teammate down. Um, things like saying, hey, look, don't feel bad which is something I'm sure you know, kids tell each other and coaches tell their, their, uh, their, their teams all the time without thinking about it. It's, it's well-intentioned. Hey, don't feel bad. But what that's doing is creating in someone's mind's eye what it would look like or what it would feel like to feel bad. And we don't want to do that. Right. Instead, we want to adjust our language so that we give them something different to focus on. So a lot of this is about getting more careful with our language so that the suggestions I give are not unintentionally bad. And, and you, you put on week-long seminars on this kind of thing. So, I mean, you can get really, really down deep into the nitty-gritty on, on language. But suffice it to say that it pays off as a coach to listen to what you're actually saying to these kids, like you said, don't feel bad. You're actually telling them to feel bad. Uh, listen to yourself and and consider what is the message that and that you're really saying, and, and what is the outcome that you're trying to get towards. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. Self reflection is pretty pretty critical because we often don't realize how we're polluting conversations and interactions with people unintentionally. We may be going in with perfect intentions, but because we were never trained to communicate in a, in a really specific, intentional way so as to create empowerment and not the reverse, um, I, I think people often find it a rude awakening to notice that they, in fact, um, if they knew what they were doing, they would change their language significantly because it's habitual. We just, uh, we're not even aware of it often. So uh, one of the most common ones is, uh, here's an example, and this, was, this is absolutely prevalent. Virtually everyone you know does this uh, from time to time, unconsciously. They'll use the word but unintentionally. Yeah. And but is one of these words that, now listen, this can be overgeneralized, and this, this doesn't work in the same way in every case. There are always exceptions to this. But generally speaking, but, generally speaking, right? Um, if someone uses the word but, it discounts, if not completely eliminates what comes before it. Like in a relationship, you ever hear, you know, I love you, but don't, you know, don't do that. Oh. Right? <laughs> So obviously that doesn't mean someone doesn't love someone, but in a coaching situation, you might say, hey, listen, uh, I, I know that play didn't go well, but um, uh, you got you got to suck it up and move forward. Now, if you say something like that to a kid, not, first of all, you're telling them not to feel bad about that something didn't go well. Um, and of course, because the, the way that the human brain responds to the word not or contractions involving not, they are in fact going to look and focus on what didn't go well, and therefore they're going to not feel good about it. And then they're going to add the word but, which is going to um, 
which isn't going to counter the negative feeling. It's actually going to counter the original linguistic representation, which is it didn't go well, but you've got to do this. So the whole sentence tells someone how to feel bad <laughs> multiple ways. Well so, done, coach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but listen, but we have to honor the intention behind what the person said, what the coach said. So yeah. obviously good intentions, poor execution, but they never knew that. They were never trained that, that language has that much of an impact on minds. So, yeah, hopefully that gives, gives a good example. Uh, that's a great example. Are there any other ways to use language that, that are simple? I know, you, like I said, you do this uh, for a whole week teaching people. Um, ten days, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my practitioner trainings are ten days long. So, yeah, there are, there are courses out there that are shorter. I don't particularly recommend them, but, hey, um, each person has got to make their own choices. There, can you can you share with the folks some ideas that uh, would put them in the right direction in using their language uh, beyond but and beyond the word don't? Uh, are there anything else that uh, that's that's available that's relatively easy to understand? Those two were, are, I think, anybody that just heard that gets what you said. It's pretty right. pretty simple. So, uh, is there anything else just... we could do? Yeah, there's lots of things. Uh, and let's also begin by adding the flip side to the word but. And everybody knows what it is. You just replace the word but with the word and. And it oh. doesn't give someone a flip negative response to what came before. You could say, uh, hey, I know that didn't go well, and I'd love to see you do beautifully on the next play. That kind of slippery slides them right into your message, right? Right. So that's a wonderful way of, of cleaning up a very simple example of unconscious use of but, which is what happens with most people. My guess is, is that everyone listening to this, if, they've had, if they haven't had any NLP training in the past, 90% um, plus of the times when they use the word but, they're not conscious of it. I mean, it's part of, it's part of our automatic replies and our ability to form language, but they probably aren't aware of the impact of the word but and the fact that they're using it is potentially not helping them. So consciously learning to replace but with and is extremely valuable. And if they drew it on their own, if they try it on their own and they're unsuccessful, we've got exercise drills that make that a permanent part of our habits. So wonderful stuff and, and training can make the difference. But if they can do it on their own, that's great. So there's one example. Uh, how about um, getting rid of words like can't? Uh, in other words, this, this victimization mindset that surrounds an inability. If we were to get rid of the word can't and instead take responsibility for what we won't do, that's huge. In other words, just a shift from can't to won't. Can't to can but won't. Can't to can but won't is an enormous change in victimization to um, to defiance, but defiance is not disempowering. It's just irresponsible or uh, or argumentative, right? There's energy behind defiance, and there's an assumed ability behind defiance that is just not being chosen. People are just not choosing to use a skill or not choosing to work hard, which is very different than the disempowering, I can't. I can't is always an excuse. Yes, yes. I, I, as you were saying that, you're putting me into a little bit of a trance because I'm sure. thinking of all the, the, the examples 
that are out there of uh, that's I, I I was blown away. I, that's that's good. What else is uh, uh, that you want to share? How about um, moving from passive verbs to uh, to active verbs, active language? The more active your language as a coach, uh, the more active your teams will be, your players will be. In other words, if you're talking about success and mindfulness and um, and uh, positioning and uh, and cooperation, all of those words will slow minds down because they're concept words. They're not active verbs. But if you take passive language like that and reactivate it, like uh, I want you to cooperate with each other. That means you walk up to your to your uh, to your teammate and you tell them what's going on. You tell them what you need from them, or you or you give them feedback. You know when you see that they could do something better, give them active feedback. Describe to them. Uh, how you think they could move better. So all of that is active verbs. And active verbs, when you use active verbs and you're talking to someone, the listener creates movies in their head. And this comes back to what you said earlier about becoming better through practice in your mind's eye. Well, practicing in your mind's eye with movies works better for learning and communication than still pictures. And these Passive verbs like like success isn't even a verb. It's now it's a nominalization. But I know you want to keep it simpler. So so these words like um, cooperation and teamwork they're wonderful concepts, but they induce immediate trance. In other words, words like success and teamwork and cooperation and um, and uh, let's say communication and and. Um, and spirit. These are all words that slow minds down because of the structure of the words. If somebody wants to know more, they can dive in through some of my stuff through my website, etc. Um, but so immediately shifting from all these concept words to active words, active verbs, uh, creates movement in people's mind's eyes. And that movement or these movies in our mind's eye are are the kind of representations that make it easier for us to imagine doing things. And that will increase our motivation to do them or to successfully achieve them. So going from passive language to active language is really critical. So that's a biggie. So is, is that the, uh, as you say, they make movies in, in our mind's eye. Is, how does that tag into the, uh, the concept of visualization? That's um, a good question, sure. Well, sure. So to me, they're identical. In other words, when, when you get someone to visualize something, uh, the idea is that they're practicing something in their mind's eye. Now, we've already, I mean, if, if your coaches are well-read, they know that there have been studies recently that show that practicing something internally is as good as a lesson live real-time. It's not, it's not good enough if, in other words, you couldn't uh, take a, a football player who was about to spend an entire semester learning um, how to get better at, uh, you know, at, at playing football and have the whole semester be just practicing while sitting at a desk. But you could replace any single lesson with visualization and they'd be better the next time they showed up on the field. So obviously uh, visualization doesn't take the place of real active um, doing of, of, the, of the skill or playing of the game, but it's an essential component, a valuable component of learning. So visualizing. That's the lay word for what we're talking about here. Internally, and we go ahead. Excuse me, if I if I may. And isn't that when you know? I know that as you say, tons of 
different ex- experts have been studied and modeled through NLP. And when they look at great athletes, quite often that's exactly what they do in their process of creating and being great within themselves. Indeed. Um, and how they visualize is often a pretty key component, too. Like you'll hear a coach saying, um, visualize it in your mind's eye. See the ball going through the basket. In other words, if you're, if you're playing basketball and you're, um, and you're getting a free shot, um, you bounce the ball and then you pick up the ball and you pretend in your mind's eye that when you release the ball, you watch it in your mind's eye going into the basket. So that's visualizing the performance of a move of some kind, uh, of some kind of a, uh, either a throw or what have you. Uh, and the visualizing helps essentially build the mechanics of it into your neurology, into your physicality. Now, you then have to go back and practice that physically until what you imagined becomes wired to the movement. So both are valuable, both are essential, and how you invite someone to visualize something can make a difference between whether it works or whether it doesn't. Now, there's some really interesting, fun nuances about how to amend that, how to make that a better process. Since all of our senses are combined, and since if you change one thing in one sense, it often has an effect on another, if you tell someone to visualize success, and you sound doubtful when you're telling them to visualize success, they will be less effective at visualizing the success because of your tone. So a coach, when making these kinds of suggestions, needs to be absolutely congruent with a total belief in the ability of their player to do what they're suggesting. Absolutely. And, it's and huge. I've, I've seen this in friends who, if anything, the best thing they do is, is that congruence. Right. And it, it's amazing if, if you have a kid that's bought in uh, to that coach and, and believes in, the, in that coach, they'll respond. It's, it's magical. It's magical. And if the coach is louder, the pictures inside will often be bigger. Wow. <laughs> if they sound more passionate, the player is more likely to succeed in, in, in performing the move. And the so, picture bigger. The picture being bigger. Again, I'm going to interrupt. I'm sorry. Um, typically, that that's more compelling in most people, right? Typically, yes, but not in all cases. So it's worth testing that, obviously. But and I'm using but intentionally there. The <laughs> the nuances here are to realize that everything is connected to everything. Um, our senses are connected. Therefore, if you want someone to visualize something powerfully, congruently. Um, and um, uh, effectively, and to be able to map those visuals across the kinesthetics, uh, you'd better make sure your sound sounds vibrant, passionate, uh, loud, etc. And if loud doesn't work, maybe with that particular player, you then try so- softer and see if that gets a better result consistently. So with everything, it's, it's a matter of becoming... Um, an outrageous experimenter to find out what's going to work best with each player. And it won't be the same thing because we're all wired a little bit differently. And generally, louder sound will make bigger pictures, but not always. Sometimes it'll be pictures are closer or more vibrant or more colorful. So these things you know, are tied together. If I may share 
that story. Uh, and I kind of there's there's a concept, and and maybe you'll want to uh, to uh, dig in deeper on this. But there's a concept in uh, in NLP called the meaning of your communication is the response you get. And what you just said reminded me, and I, I may have said this on other recordings before. I can't remember. I know I've written about it. And that is when I was at my uh, junior college playing football my, my sophomore year, I had this great coach, and he was just a fireball. He was a stereotypical just, you know, the minute he puts on his whistle, he's sweating and, you know, <laughs> vibrating and just, you know, it's just a bast- just a ball of energy that, that, that uh, is infectious. And uh, there's a, a fellow defensive lineman uh, who will remain unnamed who, as we like to say in football, the coach put a foot up his ass and screamed and yelled and, you know, just did the typical thing you see in a, in a television movie or a movie. And, uh, and about 10 minutes later, he comes up to me, and it was, it was, it was I'll never forget this because I, I do remember really being on kind of a, a low-energy vibe type thing. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't my normal self, and, and he comes up to me, and instead of putting a foot up my ass, he he comes up to me and does the and he was a shorter guy right so he comes up to me and he hangs his pinky on the bottom of my face mask and comes right into my personal space real slow stares into my eyes and finally after a long uncomfortable amount of time says <laughs> <laughs> Timmy and you know when your name, you know when I knew when a coach called me Timmy, it was it was something important. Timmy, is is everything okay? <laughs> and, and he proceeds to ask me question after you know, is the family okay? Everything good at home? Everything you know, the girlfriend? And then after a bunch of these types of questions, he finally goes in. Then why aren't you practicing like I know that you know how to practice? Damn. Uh, something along those lines. Awesome, and coach. I never wanted to ever let him feel that I was letting him down ever again. He of got course. into my head so far. I mean, it's still in there. And so can uh, I can I comment on something that uh, about, about that's connected with that? He, he because he got into close proximity, he completely filled your visual field. There was almost nothing else to look at. True. So now when you remember it, the submodalities, I know that I'm getting into more NLP than I probably should for this phone call, but in other words, in your memories, the size of his face in your memory occupies a massive Dude. amount of your visual field. Oh, yeah. So that strengthens the importance of the message. Interesting. And the importance of the message was he cared about you first before he cared about your performance. Mmm. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Nice. Yes, indeed. So powerful. Yeah. It, it was, and, and it's like I said to this day. I mean, it's, you know, I I remember a lot of things, but not everything, obviously, from the old days. And and uh, that's one of the high. That's definitely one of the highlights, and something I've tried to model as as a coach. And thanks for nailing down some of those uh, those specifics because I uh, I didn't think of it in those terms. Um, Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So. You know, long ago, I don't know if you remember having this conversation. Long ago, when I first met you at the uh, uh, the Knowledge Engineering, it was right here in uh, down the street in El Segundo, 
And yeah. I had mentioned that I, I coached kids, and uh, I remember you smiling and uh, kind of thinking, wow, what, you know, I, I, I kind of saw you appreciating what's possible, you know, that, yes. you know, and, and uh, one of the things that I was talking to you about was uh, a yelling and how there, there's, there's this conflict with a lot of the parents, and especially because I was, I was coaching very young kids, you know, eight years old, something like that. And, right. and so a lot of these uh, parents weren't used to their little cream puff being, you know, hearing this, this rough language, and not like it was cursing or anything like that, but just, you know, loud and, and rough and tumble kind of stuff. And, and uh, so I remember talking about positive and negative reinforcement and so forth. And, and a lot of the stuff today is, you know, it's only should be positive. And, and, uh, and one way that, that I was able to eventually resolve this, uh, uh, this, this idea of, you know, what if I say something that, that comes off negative um, was a mentor, one of my first mentor, coaching mentors, told me that for every negative I say I should re- repeat three positives right away. And so I'm wondering, what is your take on, on this subject matter? I love it that you've asked about this. And I also, I remember our conversations around coaching, not only in between that knowledge engineering course and, you know, since we've spoken on the yeah. phone a bunch of times and, and every time we'd had these conversations – we kept lamenting the fact that we didn't record them. So I'm, it's, it's so cool that we're doing this here. Oh. Uh, but I remember the conversation, too, back in El Segundo. Uh, I do. And, and I also remember us talking about positive and negative reinforcement and yelling. And, and I'm hopefully going to clear all that up in this phone call. Nice. Negative reinforcement is horrendous for learning. But negative and positive reinforcement for motivation is excellent. Ah. So if you want to train skills, get your head out of negative reinforcement zone. It doesn't even belong uh, on the field. When you're training a new skill and you belittle students or, or, or kids from, uh, because they performed a task poorly, you're setting them back days, weeks, I don't know how long. You may even be potentially hampering their performance for life. So why does this work? We let's let's we're going to shift gears and talk about that in just a second. I just want to uh, frame these two different things. Once a skill has been trained well, and they've repeated it until they've gotten it down and they can do it, then to motivate them to win, to motivate them to cooperate, to motivate them to rely on their teammates and to support each other, um, then there's ample opportunity for using a combination of inspiring and fear-based tactics or avoidance-based tactics. Because the combination of what we call away from pain and towards pleasure or towards a result and away from an unwanted result is an absolute powerhouse for propelling people to results and actions. So for learning, get the negative reinforcement completely out of the picture, and I'm going to explain more about why. And for motivating, combine both. And I don't even know if, if three positives is necessary against one negative, but the combination of at least one of each, and if you're going to add any more, then add it on the positive side, is just profoundly effective. Mm. Because some people are more motivated by away from pain than they are towards pleasure, and most people respond very strongly to the combination. So um, we might phrase that in the following way. We might say, 
Um, if I wanted someone to learn a skill for language, I would stay entirely in the positive. I'd say, hey, if you remember to catch yourself before uh, saying the word but, stopping, taking a deep breath, and using the word and with emphasis, you can improve your language, improve how people respond to you, and they're going to respond to you better and get more of the results you want for them. It's going to be amazing. So I'm going to stay with the positive framing for the learning and the teaching. Once people feel like they've gotten it, I would use words like, listen, remember to, to switch the word but for and intentionally because if you don't, you won't lose the sale and they'll keep coming back and referring more people to you. So that's the away from and the towards together. So that's about motivating people to choose what you're suggesting as opposed to the teaching side of things. Am I framing that well, or did I confuse things? Yeah, yeah. Let me let me get specific. Uh, I'm trying to think of okay. I'm I'm teaching a kid. Uh, let's just say I'm teaching a kid how to catch a football, and uh, one of the the first things <clears throat> that should be taught uh, when teaching how to catch a football is the uh, typically they'll the coaches will teach a putting your your fingers in a diamond, right? Your your uh, your thumbs and your uh, four fingers meet and create a diamond, and that should be how you approach the football, and you catch it at the highest point. Okay, just basic uh, example. Okay. Um, Johnny goes to catch it, and instead of waiting it, uh, for it at its highest point, I just saw this last Friday at my kid's game, perfectly thrown football. Kid doesn't reach up for it at the highest point, he, uh, nor put his hands up in, into the diamond, and he and he uh, he, he waits for it. You, we've seen this a million times where they just put their hands down at their waist and try to just let it fall there, and it fell right <laughs> out of his hands. And uh, right. and uh, thank God for us because that was a what should have been a touchdown for the opponent, and it wasn't. Um, and so uh, uh, so what what do I tell this kid? When he comes off the field, well, I would not spend any attention on um, on negative reinforcement. I might spend time observing. So, in other words, if you could stay out of criticism zone, you, you, zone, you could say, "Hey, I noticed that your hands were down by your hips as the ball was coming in." Mm -hmm. I'd love to see you uh, putting your hands up in front of you so that your your hands are closer to where the ball could arrive uh, far earlier. Can you do that? And if they say yes, then you say, that's great, because I think you're going to find that that's going to make you uh, more ready for wherever the ball is going to be. And I, that's going to be terrific to know that you can rely on that. And I would spend all of my attention during the teaching process on the positive reinforcement. And if you were doing any exercise drills for that skill during, let's say, a practice, having people throw and catch, um, you might say something like, I don't want to hear anybody telling anybody what they did wrong. I don't want to hear any of that. What I want you to do is to raise a fuss, a positive fuss, going, awesome, anytime someone catches it in the perfect way or anytime someone throws it in the perfect way. And you give positive feedback exclusively during the early stages of learning. This is about behavioral shaping. Now, here, here's where I wanted to bring in a notice, kind of a, a reference. There's this amazing book. It's a very short read. It's out in a little over 100 pages called Don't Shoot the Dog by a woman named Karen Pryor. And what it's about is what can we learn from animal training that can inform us as human trainers? And wow. this book is incredible. 
And one of the things they noticed very early on in the studies that were used in this book, uh, that were referenced in this book, is that in behavioral shaping, in actually shaping and training behaviors, negative reinforcement works horribly. Horribly. So telling people what they've done wrong focuses their attention on what they've done wrong, and then they have to spend time unwinding those those references and those images and those movies that they create in their head and replacing them with what they should be doing correctly, which is unnecessary cognitive effort. Yeah. Instead, what we do is we spend all of our time shaping positive behaviors and giving rewards for positive behaviors achieved. So anytime someone does something successful, you reward it. And over time, as they get more consistent with it, you start withdrawing the reward and making it what we call intermittent. Now, in a training process for sports, I would translate this to, let's say, in really early sports, I would have um, medal dinners, dinners to give out you know, medals for performance. Mm-hmm. I would not give medals to everybody. We, that's a, an ongoing uh, point of contention in in kids sports, right? Where everybody gets a medal just for just for participating. It's terrible. Right, right. Um, but early on, I would give a ton of medals out multiple times per semester. In other words, I would have several awards dinner for different quarters or uh, or periods during the semester. And then as they got older in high school or middle school into high school, I would make those dinners less and less frequent. Mm. So that their rewards for good performance became um, further and further out, more intermittent. Now, that's not quite the same as making rewards randomized, which is even better. Randomized is where you sort of randomly withdraw um, performance rewards or or even verbal encouragement because um, it becomes hard to predict when they'll finally get the reward that they are performing for. So there's some really interesting techniques that are part of behavioral shaping. And for people who want to know more about the specifics, they should absolutely read Don't Shoot the Dog. But again, for learning, negative reinforcement does not work, and positive reinforcement achieves the fastest goals in learning circumstances. So, you know, one, one of the things that, that I'll put out there, and, and I don't know if uh, my fellow coaches have studied uh, Pete Carroll's stuff, but uh, he's amazing and uses a lot of – really cool psychological uh, devices to uh, motivate his, his, his players. And one of the things that I absolutely thought was brilliant, although it's somewhat to, to mimic it completely like he did uh, or does, is, uh, is kind of difficult on a youth level and, and even at a high school level probably because of lack of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of staff to, to, to score it, but he would score every single drill would be scored. And, and it's in the name of what he likes to use as his overriding philosophy is, is uh, competition. And so in order to instill that competition, he created a game and everybody's playing it from the time they get on the field until the time they leave. I think it's and brilliant. so what's that? I think it's brilliant. Oh, when I first heard this, I, I, I'm like thinking, you know, it's so obvious. Why didn't anybody do this before? But it's, it, it, and that's why he's so successful. But, I mean, every single drill is scored. And somebody's, 
scoring it, and I'm not sure how they score it, but it doesn't really matter. The point is, is we all could use stuff like that to cause higher competition. And I'll just throw another a quickie that I did uh, towards the end. I, I figured out, and it was really out of frustration, uh, we did the, uh, the sprints at the end of practice, which is kind of a, a traditional thing for conditioning for football teams. And uh, I was frustrated that certain kids that had extraordinary skill were running towards the back. They had a lot of speed, a lot of uh, ability, and yet they were underperforming. So out of frustration, I call this particular kid out front, and, uh, and I grab somebody that I know would get under his skin if he lost to him. And I put them out front and let them run the drill or the sprint for 50 yards or whatever it was first. And then everybody else would go after. I'd do a secondary count for the rest of the team. Well, that thing ended up becoming like a highlight of practice. <laughs> I, I believe it. Yeah. Awesome. Let me come out, coach. Let me go. Let me go. You know, <laughs> and it became a fight to see who got to go out front. It was I'd like to say it was my brilliant thinking, but it was actually out of frustration because I was so tired of watching this kid underperform. And it was one of the best things I've, I've ever come up with. And I think for us coaches, we need to come up with ways to, to find that, that ability for them to, communicate, or to, uh, to compete. And, uh, and really, although we, we can't necessarily – do it exactly like Carol did at SC, we could use that idea to create competition in our own ways that we have available to us. And that was just one of the ways that, that I did it. And, uh, and I it think made it's a brilliant. Difference. I think it's fabulous. I, I, I mean, I like both your example significantly and, and the other one that you gave both. Uh, oh, my equally. gosh. They're, they're fabulous. I mean, they measure results. They focus the team's attention on the desire to perform. Um, and please you, even though that's not the primary result you want, that's a, certainly an effect that's going to happen. Uh, and they get to uh, and they get to in, invite or invoke their teammates' approval. So there's yeah. there's a, as for the measuring, as for the the measuring everything or scoring everything, not only does that create more propulsion. We've talked a little bit about propulsion, uh, about mm -hmm. motivation being a combination of away from uh, pain and towards pleasure. Uh, so there's definitely that. In other words, there are kids who are going to be thinking, uh, well, if I if my score keeps going down or if my score is low, then I don't I don't want that, but I do want my score to be high. So there's a combination of that. But also, and this is huge, when you measure everything, you know precisely what needs the most work. Yeah. As a coach, yeah. so you get to focus your your attention and your efforts on what to train that's going to be the most effective um, boost for the team. So very cool. Well, that old All business. Jay, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, right? That's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, so let me let me uh, kind of shift a little bit, and uh, I'm interested in your thought on what often looks like, and and probably is, a form of superstition for athletes, and 
we've all seen it. Individual rituals like a, a batter gets up to the plate, he grabs his crotch, <laughs> makes a sign of the cross, kisses his <laughs> chained cross or something, right, and, you know, waves to the, whatever. And, and so there's, there's things like that. Uh, there's team rituals uh, of gathering and chanting pregame, uh, like the haka made famous by the All Blacks rugby team from down under and now. Uh, now you see a lot of football teams and rugby teams uh, mimicking that. Does, does this kind of stuff actually work, or what? What are the mechanisms that's going on when 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 teams do this, and and how can we make it so it's instead of just some cheap rah rah, it actually causes positive uh, uh, outcomes? Well, that's a great question, and the answer is: Does it work sometimes? <laughs> so let's look into that a little bit more deeply. Um, the big issue around you gave you gave multiple examples. Let's let's look at the the haka made famous by the All Blacks rugby team. Yeah. Um, that that kind of chanting as a team um, does multiple things. It's an anchor for teamwork. It's a it, it is intended to be an intentional psych out of the other team. As I understand it, that's the primary philosophy that they advertise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's and it's it's. Um, it's very tough looking, right? So it, it has an effect on the other team if they don't if that team doesn't have anything that's comparable. It's like holy crap, that's you know, that's a that's a statement. But they're ready. They're you know they're 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 just they're primed to destroy us. <laughs> so so that's that's a visual display of of excellence and uh, and alpha male status, if you will, or alpha team status, right? Yeah. Additionally, it's um, it's a way of building their own state. Like if they, as a culture, strongly associate that with uh, with winning, then it, it's, it'll be successful at essentially triggering in them the kind of state that expects nothing less than winning, or even better, completely owning the other team. <laughs> so it can it can be that effective on multiple levels. Uh, smaller rituals like uh, a batter who taps his his bat to the plate, uh, or um, uh, or you know grabs his cup, as you say, or um, uh, or makes a sign. Uh, these are little personal triggers uh, of either hope or expectation of success, uh, or it's a little um, a little ritual that they do uh, just to kind of kickstart an expectation of doing better. It can be a state uh, boost. Uh, it we in NLP we call these little anchored responses, these anchors where there's a stimulus and a response. My guess is is that most of those little triggers that we see on TV because one particular performer does them as kind of a, a ritual or or even as a superstition, probably most of them don't have a strong impact. Because here's what the problem is with that. If they do that and then they perform poorly, and they do that on a regular basis and it's inconsistent, then the ritual becomes associated with, well, whatever happens, happens. Yep. Which is not a success trigger. And that's fine if, if you're talking about, if, if they do it intentionally so that they, they don't attach their ego to a single result, which, by the way, in sports is pretty damn important. Mm-hmm. Uh, many times we, we find that, um, that, that the, the top sports guys who attach all of their ego to one shot uh, are setting themselves up for some serious problems uh, because if they perform well, then they get to feel great. If they perform poorly on that shot, then they lose their state and 
like for golf players, this like there there are some golf players where if if they hit a shot that's bad enough, it screws up the rest of their of their game for the for the day. I mean they're done, right? Yep. There are golfers that are like that. Not a lot at the at the upper echelons, but some. So so with golfers, we do work with with state management such that any single shot they don't it doesn't affect their overall state for the day. That's pretty critical in helping golfers who are looking to go from amateur to professional. Um, and so there's a lot of that. So how, now we get to the how, how do we take these little triggers or these little rituals or anchors as we would call them and make them more effective? Well, what I would do is instead of doing that um, without practicing and strengthening those little trigger responses is I would do those little rituals the moment I hit a perfect shot, the moment I sunk the, the ball in the, in the cup, the moment I, uh, I, I got the ball into the basket, the moment I hit a home run, the moment I, I performed brilliantly, I would do my little ritual. And that ritual would start to be increasingly associated with only moments of great success. And thus, and, and as you call it, that, that, that starts to create the association of the trigger with the state. And the state is whatever state, whatever physiology or emotional state or thoughts were relevant at the time at which you hit a home run or, or performed better than ever before. So I'd want to continually practice that association between the, the trigger and the, and the perfect state that led to great performance. Um, I, I would not uh, I would not only do, do the little uh, ritual uh, before performing in real circumstances. I would have to build that up. It's like it'd be like a little magical button that uh, that would need to be recharged. Well, and will. I would I would I would venture a guess, and I'm going off of memory. I've never actually have studied this, but I would bet uh, the look of a LeBron James after draining. A three-pointer, a look of what what Kobe did after draining a, a jumper from the three-pointer. Uh, uh, Michael Jordan, their Perfect. body was probably very similar afterwards every single time. And you, I suspect you're absolutely right. And so, how do you capture that? And one way is through these little rituals. I mean, there's a lot more to that process and to that equation. In other words, yeah. how best to capture that, then we can explain in a phone call. We call it anchoring, and there's a lot of rules for creating ridiculously powerful anchors. Uh, but for our oh, conversation, sorry? Yeah, uh, and yeah, it goes, uh, like you said, you, you do 10 and 14-day seminars on, on these kind of things. Uh, but suffice it to say, they're, they're, they're being done all the time anyway. Either. All the time anyway. That's right. And as I said before, in NLP, there's, there's nothing fundamentally new in NLP apart from the fact that we're now using these skills with intention to gain a fast track. So anchoring yeah. is something that we've been doing for and to ourselves and the people we care about and people we don't care about uh, all throughout life. Every, any meme that you see out there is a form of an anchor. Anytime... Um, uh, anytime we do something that makes us giggle, that's an anchor. Anytime we do something that annoys ourselves, that's an anchor. Every button we might press unintentionally in a relationship, you know, if we upset somebody or annoy somebody, that's an anchor. So anchoring is everywhere. We just gave it a label. Um, and there's lots and lots of ways to create anchors. And some we create unintentionally and wish we hadn't. <laughs> uh, ah. yeah. So so it, anything can be anchored. And 
Uh, and if somebody wants to create these kinds of things with intention, very powerfully, they can. And I would I would say that is a very important part of a successful football pro or any sports program. Whereas the literally the uniform, uh, the location, the field itself becomes an acre as success builds upon itself. Correct. Sure. And so Absolutely. why the rich true. getting richer kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, so that's an interesting piece. In other words, if, 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 for some people, they think that it's just the little ritual that, that may be the anchor. But often there's a lot of stimuli that we don't pay attention to that are relevant for when those anchors are more, most powerful. So, for example, um, if you are setting the anchor, if you're creating an association between this wonderful, powerful state – uh, and this little ritual that you do, maybe it's you know making, making a cross on your chest if you're if you're if you're Christian. So something like that, um, if it's only practiced and set that association when you're on a field or on a court, what have you, then it's not going to work as well if you're in the bathroom while you're brushing your teeth. Yeah. Because the absence, not talked about aspect is that there's the stimuli of being on the court, surrounded by teammates, with the lights. And, and that can be as powerful a part of the overall stimuli that led to the response uh, as, as whatever little ritual is done physically. So again, there's lots and lots of rules. There's lots of things people don't pay attention to that may strengthen or weaken an anchored response. Uh, but absolutely, you know, what is practiced on the field often is available to people on the field. So and a lot important. of this... Go ahead. As I say, a lot of the stuff that you're saying that you've shared <clears throat> can be uh, can be used without having to know all these big words, right? That's I very mean, true, of course. And some of and so that's what really what I'm I want everybody to get is look, you you can do this without having to know all this super fancy uh, language, and I mean a lot of it just makes sense coming right out of out of your mouth. Um, I'll give you an example, something I was thinking about as you were saying this. I thought, gosh, well, what if I, you know, took over a, a college or, or, a, or a high school or, a, uh, or, or a, 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 a youth league that is very used to losing? Well, probably I thought, as, as you were talking, I thought, well, I'd, I'd probably, gosh, I might want to paint the locker room. Right? Maybe change some photos in there because sure. that, that could set your state, anchor your state before you even get out of the field for practice. Maybe change some of the, the way that, that practice. I know when I practice, a lot of times I, I would do my, I would flip my, my practice plan. I would do stuff in the middle, I would do it at the end. Part of it was just to make it kind of unique each time so, you know, as, as time went on, they wouldn't get so bored. But, um, but I just think that, you know, I, I would, you could change the uniform. You could change a lot of things and it now make, and then, but make sure that when you change them now that you're, you're successful and you're creating a, a new set of, uh, a chain of anchors that, uh, that really perpetuate and, and propel that, that success uh, for you. Well, absolutely. And, and it's, it's really interesting you would raise that. So, 
So let's just talk about that. Environmental changes like that can be profound anchors. If you're going to spring something like that on people after they've had, let's say, one or a series of uh, negative experiences that have potentially led to negative beliefs, and thus every time they enter the locker room from that point forward, now they come out on the field feeling dejected, feeling like they don't have the, the potential for winning, etc. That's a powerful negative motivator. So if you go ahead and do something like changing the carpeting or repainting the locker rooms or repainting the lockers um, or, uh, or rearranging things somehow in there, uh, I would immediately follow that up with a series of intentional drills that all of them succeed at. Now, listen, as a coach, you know what I'm talking about here. There are, there are times during training where we want to intentionally make it easy for everyone to succeed at the exercise we're proposing, just as there are times when we want them to be working hard and working through repetitious failures, improving bit by bit and noticing their improvement over time, right? There are times when we, when we want them to intentionally fail and then work through it and get to success. And then there are times when we want to build confidence in our students or our, our players or what have you. And so we, we construct experiences where everybody wins, everybody succeeds at everything they're trying, at least for a short period of time, right? Yep. So I would want to, to follow up all the negative stuff in the past with changes to environment and changes to training process, and, and I would want them to have uh, a wealth of experience and training drills that inevitably would lead to their success for a period of time so that they could build up a positive state and, a, and an expectation of continual improvement. Now, um, just to shift gears to show why this is so important, if I do uh, coaching work, and I do a lot of coaching work, so if I, if I do coaching work with, uh, with someone in a personal realm, and I do less personal coaching than I do business coaching nowadays, but there were times when people would, would ask for coaching to help them get over a tough relationship um, where they're still thinking about the person continually, and, um, and that's unfortunate. And if they were able to get the person back, great. And if they weren't, then it's detrimental for them to be consumed with thinking about a person, right? So that's not helpful. Um, in addition to the work that I would do on beliefs and deep structure and on state management, um, once the work is done in the coaching session, that's great. They're going to leave the session feeling awesome, or at least better, and it doesn't account for how if they go back home and they enter their house and there are a thousand reminders of the other person who's not in there anymore, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 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 Essentially, they've got tons of anchors that are preset that are all designed to remind them of the other person. So I, I'll often suggest it's time to change the blankets that you use. It's time to rearrange the house so that it looks a little different. It's time to replace the, uh, the lampshades and to move things around because uh, it's time to create some different anchors. You know, have the, have the house not be a reminder. Instead, to have it remind you of new possibilities. So... So if someone doesn't rearrange their, their home context after a relationship, that, that will, no matter how good the work is in, in the session, often they'll revert because they're not changing their external environment. So you raised a really important point, which is external environment is potentially as important as our internal state because of all mm -hmm. anchors. So you just said something about the locker room. What about the field? Yeah. What if you got them to, to paint old signs so that everything looked new around the, around the, the field? Mm -hmm. What if you got them to, um, uh, to mow the lawn or to clean up old trash 
so that they spiffed up their own um, their own playing environment. Yep. So there's all kinds of ways to improve an environment, which in turn changes the states of the people who are playing. And and within that, you you mentioned there, there's a lot of mul- multiple ad- advantages and out and positive outcomes. You're not only creating good anchors, you're also creating. Whenever we do, obviously we all know this. Whenever we do work towards anything and we effort towards anything, we're we're creating value around uh, that that arena. And so if we are cleaning up trash, we are painting, and we're putting in the efforts ourselves as team and coaches and staff, then, in fact, we take pride and we take ownership in it, and it kind of feeds on itself, on, on, on itself right? I mean, it, it, uh, uh, you have the, that pride, you have that, that value, and, and it's anchored. Exactly. So, uh, with that, you know we've we've talked. All, you've shared so much, bro. I really <laughs> appreciate it. It's and we, we and have covered a lot. We really have. And and the funny thing is, is I could talk to you and ask you questions for the next two hours. But uh, this is a podcast, so we need to to uh, to end it. I I want to say thank you. And you have paid me some compliments. And I would like to say I had a good teacher. Um, and um, and that's a compliment back to you. And I highly recommend you. And uh, and anybody who's listened can can hear the the expertise in in the way that Jonathan teaches. And uh, so, how do people find you, Jonathan? Oh, good question. Um, well, probably the easiest way is for them to visit my website, which is. Um, it's not the easiest URL, <laughs> so you know I made this mistake about 19 years ago. Instead of having something dash NLP as my website, I use my last name. So as long as they spell my last name correctly, they'll find me. And that's Altfeld, which is A L T F as in Frank E L D dot com. And any page at my website, Altfeld dot com, they'll see um, near the top on the right side. There's a link that says two free gifts, two free NLP gifts. And if someone clicks on that and shares with me a bunch of information about themselves, which I will never share with third parties, it tells me a little bit about them, their name, their uh, contact information, their background, uh, their interests, etc. If they're willing to share all that information with me, I send out a lumpy packet, including a couple of free gifts. This goes out in the mail at my expense. Happy to do it. Um, and uh, so there's a free CD. There's a sensory-rich vocabulary booklet that will help them with, with creating more compelling responses from people. And a whole bunch of information about uh, other other offerings that uh, are available to people. So uh, that's the best way for them to learn more about what I do. And I think we also talked about the possibility of offering something nice to your listeners. And so how about the following? Um, I have one recording which is really general for just about anybody, especially for – I mean, it's great for coaches who want to be listened to more effectively uh, and be more compelling to to anyone who's listening – it's a CD set or MP3 set called Finding Your Irresistible Voice. It's about two hours. Uh, you can get it either as CDs or, or as MP3 set. And I'm offering your listeners 15 bucks off of the $79 price, so they can get it for 64 There's going to be a coupon code that they can use either on the MP3 set or on the CD set. And the coupon code will be TIM-VOICE, TIM-VOICE. 
and that'll be good for as long as I guess you publish the the podcast. So it's a it's just an offering to um, to let people get kind of a discounted first first exposure to some of the work that I do. So that's, uh, that's generous. That's that's very nice, and we'll we'll be putting. Uh, the, these links uh, also down below the uh, wherever we have the the podcast this interview published so you'll be able to to, to just click on over there also so and and I'll tell you the uh, if I may add uh, to to what you said about your uh, your big uh, lumpy uh, mail where you give a bunch of value for free um, one of the things that I I suggest the coaches and why these kind of interviews are so important is, you know, we, we talk about to our kids, uh, work hard, you know, go, you know, we're getting the gym and football is year round anymore. Right guys. And, and we, we got to get them in the weight room and especially as they get older, um, maybe not in when they're eight years old, hopefully, but definitely in high school. And, we, you know, and then they're they're doing seven on seven in the off season, and then you know the season comes super quick, and they're back to it and work, 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 and then meanwhile they they're they're doing their their schoolwork and academics and everything else, and we think sometimes I think mistakenly that we don't have to put in the work; we already know the work, and it's these kind of interviews that we've been doing over the last several weeks that can add to your ability to not just be one speed, to shift to a kid's needs like my coach did for me and be able to speak to them in their most valuable way that they need to be coached. And uh, when you're able to do that, uh, your coaching skill will expand exponentially. You'll find that the wins come a lot easier. And I don't mean just on the scoreboard, but Johnny learning how to do a skill will happen a lot faster. And a lot of times it's because you're communicating it better. So Jonathan can definitely help you with that. So I, uh, I want to thank you again, Jonathan. It's and truly a pleasure. And I'm really glad we got a chance to, to record record this oh, yeah. capture some of the, the magic of our previous conversations. We, we, we've saved the world a couple times in our conversations. Hopefully <laughs> uh, hopefully some of it got captured today. And with that, uh, hang on. I'm going to stop the recording. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.